A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinkers. We're going to talk about a dystopian society today. No, not our own. I don't know why you would think that that might be even on the plate, but uh, actually uh, I, I have found that dystopian literature is really popular right now. People are like, hey... Let's see how bad it could get. Personally, I gravitate toward 1984, but my guest is Jen Mafasante. She writes for the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jen, you have recently written a marvelous piece about Brave New World. And since I guess I'm not watching enough television these days, so, so apparently there is a new series on NBC's new streaming app of Brave New World. Yes. Yes, there is. Um, the first full season is is out in its entirety. It's available to stream on Peacock, NBC's streaming service. Uh, and I do recommend that you give it a watch. Okay. Now, specifically, you and I are going to talk about happiness today because th- there are some very powerful lessons that can be drawn from this series, Brave New World, as well as the 1932 uh, Aldous Huxley novel that it's based on. Um, first thing I have to ask, though, how closely does the the series on television follow Huxley's novel. Do they take a lot of poetic license? There are some modifications. Um, as far as the plot is concerned, it does stick pretty closely. It hits all those big beats that appear in the book. But there are some modernizations to NBC's version of the show. And uh, like, for example, the uh, inclusion of an AI that is heavily influential in people's social lives. It allows them to immediately be able to classify what, what tier all of the people who are around them are in so that they know if it's okay to actually socialize with them or not. Okay. Um, But you know, like aside from a few modernizations and, and you know, just little tweaks here and there, I, I think it is very true. Um, to the book, and I don't mind the modifications at all. Well, when when I hear people bring up dystopian novels, 1984 is always one of them, and Brave New World always seems to be the other. But there's a, there's a pretty good difference between the way these two novels approach dystopian society. Uh, you mentioned before we went on the air, 1984 takes kind of the brute force approach, showing the ugliness, the violence, the, the really um, dark, dark side of it. But tell me about how that differs from Brave New World. Brave New World seems to be kind of a warning tale as well. But what is it about the the society in Aldous Huxley's novel that that differs from what Orwell was trying to paint? Well, in many ways, the themes of those two books are very similar. Um, I think the key overlaps here are the way that uh, the powers that be control people's thought processes. In 1984, that's done through brute force, manipulation of the historical record, 
and going so far as to um, doctor language as well, to just absolutely just change the language that people use. The thinking being that if you didn't have, you know, the appropriate language to commit wrong think, then you literally could not do it. So that's 1984. In Brave New World, Huxley takes uh, an alternate route. It's not the brute force, iron-fisted command and control that 1984 is. is. This is much more subtle and much more insidious to my mind. The thought control is done through psychological conditioning from um, from the in vitro uh, point of development of all of these humans, and also through uh, psychotropic medications, uh, soma, the so-called perfect drug of New London, is used to do everything from ease anxiety to um, control pain. And eventually, uh, once you've outlived your usefulness in New London, Soma is also used for euthanasia purposes. Wow. Yeah. I love in your article on fee.org, you talk about how in, uh, in Brave New World, everyone in New London is genetically engineered and psychologically conditioned to be suited to and satisfied with a specific role in their society. Um, and, and so I want to pose this next question. Um, is that is that for their happiness, perchance? Ostensibly, yes, it is. Uh, these roles in society have to be filled by someone. Uh, in you know, in in the in the United States, um, this is largely done through voluntary choice. You know, we we decide what we want to be when we grow up, and we and we put our efforts towards achieving that. And in the meantime, we work jobs that get us to that that place in life that we that we want to be in new london that is predetermined um at the time of we'll call it conception for last for lack of a better term but babies aren't actually born in new london like humans don't carry babies babies are hatched in a lab hatched is the term that they actually use so all of all of these roles are predetermined before even these children are born, um, and their genes are altered uh, so that they fit within a certain caste in society, and they're also psychologically conditioned from the moment of birth to either, uh, for example, the Epsilon caste in, in New London is psychologically conditioned to uh, fear wide open spaces, to fear intellectual curiosity, and to be intellectually inferior than um, in, than other castes in New London. Um, and that is so that ostensibly so that they won't even want to be something different. They will be completely satisfied with their assigned role in society because everything else is literally terrifying to them. And in this society, they're encouraged to engage whatever hedonistic uh, impulse they they want to, uh, you know, uh, if they have an itch, go ahead and scratch it. Uh, No difficult decisions to be made. I mean, how could that not be a recipe for happiness? All the cares and worries of the world taken away, the perfect drug to soothe your anxieties, no responsibilities, 
and yet you make a very powerful point in your article where everybody's supposed to be happy, somehow they're not. Why is that? Well, the thing of it is, human nature, the human psyche, is not actually well-suited to a perfectly comfortable, perfectly safe lifestyle. That's not how humans evolved to work, okay? We just don't do that very well. Uh, and, and you see this even in the real world. We are current, you know, COVID is still, is still a thing. We're all still in some sort of measure of, of lockdown state. Uh, you know, things are not super awesome in the short term. But when you, when you take a step back and, and you zoom out from just your own individual life stuck in your own house, the human race as a whole has it better than they have literally ever had it in the history of this planet. Uh, our lives are more comfortable, safer, um, wealthier, healthier. We're more educated. Just everything is is so much better than it ever has been before in human history. And yet the rates of depression and anxiety, particularly in the United States, have skyrocketed in, in recent years. And some of that, I'm sure, has to do with better diagnosing procedures and more people being willing to speak to mental health professionals uh, and seek help for those for those problems that were all you know already were prevalent in our society. But you know, we still even taking that into account, we still have really upsettingly high levels of anxiety and depression in our society. Uh, despite the fact that we have pretty much everything that we need and most of what we want. So this, this rings so true to me and, and we're coming up on our break here. So we'll have to pick this up the other side of our commercial break. Jen Mafasanti is my guest and we're talking about her article in Peacock's Brave New World. Everyone is happy. Or so it seems, which, by the way, you'll find that linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I strongly recommend you take a read and maybe share it amongst your friends and on social media. We will take a very quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills and be back right after this. The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Jen Mafasante. She is a senior writer for the Foundation for Economic Education, which I, I just have to, Jen, I have to give a plug to Fee. Um, there is so much great content that comes out of that organization. And you are so blessed to work with some of the most wonderful people walking the face of the earth. And, and I just, I express that in appreciation for you coming on my show today to talk about your article in Peacock's brave new world. Everyone, everyone is happy or so it seems you have some great insights to offer. Let's talk about what happiness is. Okay. Well, we all like to think that we know what happiness is. Like we've all felt happy before. So like, but happiness as 
a sustained state of being. It's not about smiling a lot. It's it's not about laughing. Uh, it's not about that giddiness that you get when you're cutting up with your friends, although that does play into it. Um, but, you know, people who are able to meet their basic needs for survival, who are able to give and receive gifts and attention without any kind of resentment, who are free of strife, um, that's great, but that's not everything that we need. Um, being comfortable physically is nice, but it doesn't actually have that much to do with our actual levels of happiness. What is most important to people feeling happy is actually autonomy. And that is being able to exert some measure of control over your own life, feeling like you can make decisions for yourself and that those decisions matter. Uh, that kind of autonomy is more important than literally anything else when it comes to uh, feeling happy. Uh, there have been some interesting studies lately that have come out from a number of different places, and they've all indicated that even with patients who are very depressed, like um, elderly people in nursing homes, if you grant them some measure of autonomy over their environment, their energy levels pick up. They smile a lot more. They report that their uh, symptoms of depression have decreased. And just by allowing them to decide what channel the TV should be on, that kind of thing. So autonomy is extremely important to human happiness. One of the big takeaways that uh, that I found in your article was the idea that uh, even if someone is well-intentioned, by someone I'm talking about, those in positions of authority, they may want to, to try to, to make people happy. I can make you happy. I can make you better. But it's not something we can be forced into. And that was a very powerful way of putting it, as you, as you put it in there. You can't force people to be happy. It goes back to the autonomy you're referencing. If you're going to be happy, that's got to be something you choose at an individual level and are willing to pay the price for at an individual level. Pretty much. Um, humans, the happiness is, happiness is not an external state of being. Happiness is never going to come from the outside in. Happiness is something that you have to strive for yourself. And through the exercise of autonomy, the exercise of personal responsibility, that is really the only way that you can actually reach a state of genuine happiness. And, you know, even economists twigged to this, um, you know, many decades ago, um, Ludwig von Mises uh, actually wrote in his book, Liberalism, in 1927, uh, that men cannot be made happy against their will. Like, this is not something that you can just decree that, okay, well, you're going to be happy and you're going to be happy in this environment that I have created for you. That's not how humans work. We need to be challenged. We need to work towards something. We need to um, toughen our minds to the discomfort of change. Change is not fun. It is unpleasant and I hate it, but <laughs> I only hate it while it's happening. 
afterwards, I look back and I think, you know, I, I remember the struggle. I remember the discomfort. I remember sometimes the actual literal physical pain. And I think, you know what? It was worth it because where I'm at is better than where I was. I, I so relate to what you were saying, and that's a journey I've had to take myself because I, I wanted to avoid that pain. But what, what you're describing, it's it's not just, you know, this isn't you're not a masochist because you're like, OK, so it's painful. Bring the pain. It's uh, it's legitimate pain that comes as, as the product of growth. The person who goes out and runs their lungs burn, their legs ache, their muscles protest. But there's legitimate pain involved in becoming you know, sturdier, more fit, having endurance. And, and I see that applied to so many other areas. You, you just, you say it beautifully. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's also a lot like learning to play like a stringed instrument, learning to play the guitar. Um, if you've ever picked up a guitar uh, and tried to, to play a few chords or at least just messed around with the strings, like your fingertips hurt after a little while. It takes weeks and months of work to build up calluses on your fingertips so that you can play the guitar without discomfort. And in those you know weeks and months, it hurts. It's not fun. But if that's what you want, if you want to make music with the guitar, you, that's a thing that you've just got to have to go through. The same way with just living your life, you've got to build up those those mental calluses in some places. Otherwise, if you stay in that comfort zone, if you stay in that very safe place where nothing ever challenges you, um, nothing ever hurts your feelings or anything like that, then every single shock to your system becomes more and more painful because you haven't built up any sort of tolerance for it. And, I see this with so many people, especially my age. I'm a millennial. Um, They just, they never learned how to take those hits. And so now every single obstacle, every single hardship is a disaster because they just never learned how to roll with those kinds of punches. And so being willing to challenge yourself is such an important step towards happiness. It's not staying with only people who agree with you or only people who never challenge you. Here, it's here. about there and testing yourself. And and you can tell the people that you encounter who have done this, who are used to encountering, you know, people who have disagreed with them because they're those people are less likely to fly off the handle the first time someone says, "Well, I think you're wrong." You know, and, and it's it's not that they're not open to the possibility they might be wrong. It's just that, you know, that's it's it's not such a shock. The person who's been sheltered and never been told no, you know, they're they're the ones more likely to be uh, dogmatic or to be offended. That's so, why how how could you not see things my way? Um, exactly. We're, we're down to about a minute here. Um, Jen, talk to me for a moment about the Foundation for Economic Education for people who aren't familiar with this wonderful organization. What would you want them to know about it? Well, uh, FEE has been around for over 74 years now. We're coming up really fast on our 75th anniversary, and that's a, it's really exciting for us. Um, but we've dedicated ourselves to teaching young people um, the principles of economics and not just 
just the subject of economics, but also the ethical and the legal underpinnings that come with a free society, the personal responsibility that is intrinsic in being able to achieve that. And I've been so, so blessed to be able to work with some of the best people and the smartest, most creative, most caring people I, I've ever had the pleasure to work with to this point. Um, I, I'm just... We have a ton of content out there from articles like the one Brian's been talking about that I wrote uh, to also a whole lot of videos. Uh, Check us out on YouTube as well. Very good. Jen, so good to talk with you. I will have your article in the show notes, and I hope we can talk again soon. Absolutely. I would love it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, want to mention that our show is brought to you in part today by the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can check out their website. Go to staplesmortgage.com. That'll take you right to John and Heather's page. And they are the folks to help you, whether you are looking for a new home loan or whether you are looking for a uh, refinance on your existing home mortgage. I don't know why, but the, the real estate market is going nuts. And Patriot Home Mortgage has operations in 23 different states. They have the clout. They have the experience. And they've got wonderful people like John and Heather who can help you. The Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Go to staplesmortgage.com. Please mention that you heard me talk about them. Say I came because Brian was saying you guys are the bee's knees. They really are. Let them know that their message reached your ears. All right, a couple different things going on here. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to save the best for last. Do you have a plan for improving your spouse? That's a Paul Rosenberg essay that landed in my inbox today. It's really It's good. It's very thoughtful, by the way. It's kind of an attention-grabbing headline, but I I think uh, the point is is very well taken. Here's one that stumps me just a little bit, though. And this is, uh, I've heard a lot of news, a lot of uh, contrived outrage in the last few days. Um, I I guess, you know, the the shrillness of the presidential campaign is is starting to really kick in. I mean, come on, we're getting, you know, a month and a half out. Um, It's, it's, picking up in pace it's picking up in shrillness i think my dog is really the only one who can appreciate you know fully just how shrill it's getting but among the latest manufactured outrage is the idea well you know the president didn't do enough to defeat the coronavirus and i am not trying to defend donald trump as one who walks on water or otherwise has the answers to our prayers but can i just ask you since when does any political figurehead any political figure control the forces of nature great article in forbes this is by john tamney trump isn't the only one who got the pandemic wrong in february and i just i share this not to to bolster trump's you know reputation or to tell you you know this is why you should vote for him but just to point out the the people who are pushing these political campaigns are so craven right now that i i just wonder if it ever occurred to them that that maybe they're just trying to, to play for points. What can we throw at the wall? What's going to stick? 
Well, you know, he didn't tell, he didn't get all excited and fearful about this, and that cost American lives. I don't believe that for a second. And John Tamney explains why the president's critics really can't have it both ways. So he starts with a quote from Donald Trump. I disagree with him on what he is doing. Those were the words of Donald Trump in response to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's decision to partially reopen the Peach State back in late April. Now, though Trump had described the president's powers over governors and states as absolute, the reality was quite different. The president of the United States is not a dictator. By constitutional design, the president really isn't supposed to be that powerful. Per the Tenth Amendment, most policymaking power is left to the states. So when Kemp reopened Georgia, he didn't need Trump's permission. Simple as that. Kemp's decision to ignore Trump rates mention in consideration of all the hysteria about the latest Bob Woodward revelation. In so many words, Trump told him he didn't want to foment panic about the coronavirus, even though he supposedly knew it was deadly. And John Tamney asks, and this is a story? He says Trump's critics can't have it both ways. If he's as doltish as they claim, what would it matter what Trump felt about the virus, particularly in February? What would it have mattered when it's remembered that those who didn't vote for Trump don't even view him as a legitimate president? Were never Trumpers and Democrats more broadly suddenly going to take seriously the person they make sport of ridiculing? As for Trump diehards, if those up in arms are to be believed, the diehards don't believe in science to begin with. And since they don't, why would it have been a big deal to mask despising deplorables what Trump said about the virus? So again, he asks, and the scandal is what? Yet Trump's former, or rather Woodward's former colleague in Carl Bernstein made some kind of grave pronouncement that Trump's alleged fib was bigger than Watergate, to which John Tamney says, oh, please. Trump was saying what most everyone was saying on the left and right at the time. No one really knew, one way or the other. Goodness, he says as late as March 2nd, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio was still telling city dwellers to go see a movie. A May of 2020 report from the New York Times indicated that de Blasio was still resisting calls in March to cancel large gatherings. That until the middle of March, de Blasio did not order major closures, including of schools and restaurants. And even then, he was delayed by New York Governor Cuomo. On February 29th, the science-believing former Vice President Joe Biden won the South Carolina primary. In his victory speech, he didn't, didn't even mention the virus. Malpractice? Watergate in scope? Tamney says National Review contributor Jonathan Tobin has reported that even the New York Times editorial board didn't mention the virus in the month of February until the very last day of the month. The page had mostly been quiet since hard-left columnist Farad Manju downplayed virus nail-biting with a late January op-ed in which he expressed fear about place, the placing of unnecessarily severe limits on movement and on civil liberties. Another New York Times report from late April indicated that Vogue editor Anna Wintour told her staff in late February that the virus was no big deal, which is just what Trump is reported to have said. At the time, no big deal was the consensus on both sides, arguably with good reason. Now, John Tamney says to see why the above is true, consider what the Wall Street Journal's Mary O'Grady has regularly pointed out in recent years. Thanks to the proliferation of smartphones in Cuba, the regime's dastardly ways have grown increasingly difficult to hide. Think about that for a minute, and then think about China. 
Word on the virus is that it spreads very rapidly and China didn't lock down until January. It's safe to say the virus had been moving around the country and the world for quite some time. Now, this is important because mainly if it had been a major or even a minor killer, there's no way the Chinese government could have kept this news suppressed given the density of smartphones in the country. He says it's also worth pointing out that the most valuable U.S. companies have major exposure to China's economy. That they do provided even more evidence that whatever the particulars of the virus, it thankfully wasn't lethal. Had it been, companies like Apple, Nike, and, and so forth would have seen their shares correct long before March to reflect major shrinkage of a major market. Just to put that in perspective, for Apple, one-fifth of its iPhone sales are in China. For Nike, China is its second largest market. Now, John Tamney says Woodward et al. will say Trump downplayed the threat. But if anything, he overplayed it with his late January decision to shut down flights between the U.S. and China. You can't block out reality. Plus, if it's true that the virus had begun spreading in China as far back as November, it's not unreasonable to presume that the virus had already long before made its way around the world, given the myriad flights between China and the U.S., along with the rest of the world. But he says that's all, in a sense, a digression. Not only are the up-in-arms lefties feigning fake outrage at pretending they cared one bit what Trump felt about the virus, the simple truth is that he's, once again, not a dictator. And it wasn't just the Republican governor in Kemp who made this point. Doesn't anyone remember what New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said about the supposedly science-denying red states that locked down less aggressively than states like New York? In Cuomo's own jumbled words, you told the people of your state and you told the people of this country, White House, don't worry about it. Just open up. Go about your business. This is all democratic hyperbole. You see, 50 different states, 50 different policies. Cuomo ultimately imposed stringent ones. Scientists and doctors can debate whether or not they worked. But the main thing is that Cuomo, like seemingly all Democratic governors, went his own way about the virus and without regard to Trump's expressed views. Which, by the way, is the American design. Policymaking power resides in the states. They did as they did. Trump's error was in presuming the president had a role. Not really. And thankfully so. Really, what kind of sad people would look to their president, Democrat or Republican, to hold their hands in the face of a virus? What do presidents know about fighting them? Which is the point. U.S. presidents, thankfully, aren't dictators, nor does their job include virus fighting. He says the outrage about this is manufactured, or more realistically, it's fake. I don't know if that soothes your, your ruffled feathers if you're a Trump supporter. I don't know if it ruffles your feathers if you're not a Trump supporter. But I think that's a point of view worth considering. Don't put your trust in a politician to hold your hand and make it all better, you know, by pretending that they know how to get this virus under control. I know that's one of the tactics that Biden is taking right now and trying to convince people that, yeah, 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 you know, I have a plan. My plan is going to work, unlike the president who just sat there and let the virus run rampant. Neither one of them controls the forces of nature. Do not kid yourself otherwise.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. There is uh, there is an article which I, I did not get into today's show notes. I'll see if I can update them and post a link. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but um, you've probably heard the words critical race theory. And if you're not sure what that means, well, or I, I don't attend a university, so maybe I haven't heard those words. Let me just tell you this. If you see people standing out on the, the street corners chanting, holding signs, Black Lives Matter, uh, everything is racist, everything is racist, Critical race theory is one of the things that's driving this particular um, moral imperative that uh, we're seeing all across the nation. But what is it? What is critical race theory? Does it promote racial justice and harmony or is it toxic and divisive as, as its critics claim? What is its relation, if there is any, to Marxism? There's an excellent piece from Dan Sanchez, Tyler Brandt and Brad Palumbo. Now, these are three really, really smart guys putting their heads together and offering a great answer, which you can find at uh, Foundation for Economic Education's website, feefee.org. I'll see if I can add it to the show notes, but uh, we'll see if, if I'm under the gun for time. I may have to uh, put it in tomorrow's show notes. So here's, here's another loaded question for you. Do you have a plan for improving your spouse? I know right here it's like, okay, hold for the, no, but she sure has one for improving me. There we go. Paul Rosenberg asks this question, and it's not what you may think. It's not about, uh, so, you know, are you uh, trying to manipulate your spouse into becoming the person you wanted them to be all along? Listen to his take on this. I think this is a really refreshing approach. And it's not quite what you may think, just from the question he asks. He says, all of us with husbands and wives, mates, whatever, are perfectly positioned to make them better human beings. But he says, it seems to me that most of us squander it. So he says, today, I'd like to help fix that. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, with the possible exception of your children, there is no one you're likely to be closer to than a spouse. And that even goes for a lot of people with problem spouses. Being with someone day and night over a protracted period conveys more understanding than pretty much anything else. Along with that comes opportunity. No one can present and support more ideas. No one can better nurture attitudes. No one will have more right times to insert a useful word, feeling, encouragement, or compliment. And so the position of spouse can be of immense effect. He says, what I'm suggesting today is that we use it consciously and intelligently. By the way, those are two very important qualifiers. In other words, so get to work changing your spouse. You got to do it consciously, but you got to do it smart. He says, I'm fully certain that we can make each other better people. Wives can make their husbands better, and husbands can make their wives better. No one is better placed. No one has better reason for doing so. No one will be better able to make course corrections as they go. Now, this in a better world, he says, would be glaringly obvious to us and would come to us naturally. It doesn't, of course, and so he says, I'll start by going through the major obstacles I see. The first one is our culture of complaint. Humans like to complain. 
But he says, more than that, we gain a sort of status from it, or as we used to say, bragging rights. We're suffering but continue performing our duties anyway. We overcome the stupid obstacles thrown down in front of us by stupid people, and so on. It conveys an image of vibrance and nobility, and we can generate that image upon demand. Now, he says, bear in mind, please, I'm not saying that these quasi-boasts are false. Very often they are not, though they tend to be poorly directed. The problem with complaint is that it becomes a go-to, feel-good tool and displaces more important uses of mind. Uses like actually solving problems. Ultimately, the culture of complain treats circumstances as fate and absolves us from all responsibility for improving ourselves and our families. And to this, he says, I'm quite sure you can see how this undermines any plan for making our spouses better. Then we have adversarial images. Men and women have always developed adversarial images of each other and based at least loosely on legitimate reasons. First, we're born with an innate and overpowering reproductive urge, the need for sex, and thus we are forced together. In a better world, we'd handle this far better and teach our children to handle it far better. But here we are now, and so we must deal with where we are now. Propelled by our bodies, we still try to find mates we appreciate in as many ways as possible. But he says choosing is hard, and we're all doing it under biological pressures, not to mention the pressures applied by other people. Now to this he says, I think we're generally getting better at this, but it remains an issue. The conditions spawned by this, combined with our culture of complaint, seem to promote wives complaining about husbands, husbands complaining about wives, and so on. And in some ways this is fine. Wives, for example, often compare strategies for dealing with the oddities of their husbands. Still, once this becomes habitual, it focuses, on our, it focuses us on our spouse's shortcomings, rather than seeing how to improve them. Making it worse over the past few generations has been militant feminism. All militant mindsets require an enemy as a focal point, and this one chose men. Now, this is not to say that feminism per se is a bad thing, but any movement featuring an enemy is biased away from improvement toward destruction. There's also the matter of insecurity. The consistent message of pop culture is that love is about salving insecurities. How many I need you songs have you heard? And wouldn't I want you more than I need you be a bigger compliment? Our culture then sees insecurity as a fundamental pivot with love turning upon it. And he says, I think that's deeply mistaken. Love is a desire to bless. It's a hunger to bless. It's not based upon insecurity. Rather, it works to remove the insecurities of a beloved. Far too many relationships involve the matching of insecurities than eliminating them. And as that goes on, people learn not to believe in their own worth, finding safety in the fact that their spouse is a little more insecure than they are. So he says the fields are white for harvest. The couples of the West have wide and fertile vistas in front of them. Whether or not your plan is formal and written, you have it in your power to make your spouse a better person. And he says, I'm recommending that you give it some serious thought. If you do this with any degree of success, which he says, I think is as close to guaranteed as we can get, you'll make your spouse better, make your family better, especially children, and you'll almost certainly find yourself becoming better. He says, this whole thing is a massive win-win cycle. And so I recommend starting as soon as possible and continually revamping your plan as you go.
Good luck. Now, I don't know if that kind of struck you as, as it struck me. It's just a little bit, uh, that was different from what I expected. When I saw the headline, you know, of uh, the plan for, imp- do you have a plan for improving your spouse? My first thought was, well, that's how the fight begins. Usually somebody wants to improve the other and and it just turns into a power struggle. But I go back to what he talked about uh, or in that one of those first paragraphs about knowing where we can give the best word, feeling, encouragement, or compliment. Now, if you think about your spouse in those terms, what could I do? What could I say? What could I do to encourage? What could I do to compliment? That puts a whole different spin on it, doesn't it? I think back to uh, one of my first friends to, to get divorced. This was a long time ago. I mean, this is, you know, 30-some years ago. But this friend had uh, got a bad case of the grass is greener over there, and so he went chasing over the grass over there, and and uh, he and his wife, you know, were, were debating, are we going to get divorced? And I remember his ecclesiastical leader telling him at that time, you will never find another woman who loves you as much as this one you have right now. But it was something he took for granted. And I know in later years he told me that's, uh, that's actually one of the worst mistakes he'd ever made in his life to end that relationship and move on trying to find something better. Now, I'm not saying he was doomed to a life of unhappiness. You know, he and she divorced. They went their separate ways, remarried. They've adjusted. I hope they're happy. I hope that they found happiness. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in that warning of you're not going to find someone else better suited for your happiness than that individual that you're with. And I understand there may be cases of abuse or things like that where that may not be the case. But for most people, it really comes down to selfishness. That's the catalyst that really starts to corrode corrode the whole relationship. So I'll post this with the show notes. You can check it out at thebrianhideshow.com. Paul Rosenberg, do you have a plan for improving your spouse? It's not about raising them up to meet your expectations. It's about recognizing those areas where you can help lift and sustain and encourage them to meet their own potential, to reach their own expectations. And I hope you can see the world of difference in that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.